0: Proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the reformed confessions of the faith were written and still have a major impact on the church
1: today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically
0: sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to The Confessional Collective.
1: Welcome to The Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have Youth Minister Cameron Triggs. Cameron, how you doing, man?
0: Doing very well, brother. Thanks for having me.
1: Pretty excited about having you on. Uh, just want to uh, give a little background to our listeners. Why don't you give a little 30-second bio of who you are and what you've been up to?
0: Yeah, my name's Cam Triggs. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, serving in Jacksonville, Florida at Shiloh Church. I'm a youth pastor, um, married to my beautiful wife, Tamara Triggs, and we have a... Baby boy who's about to turn one. His name is Cameron ML Triggs the second.
1: The second. All right, man.
0: Yep. <laughs> so very
1: good for you. Very good. And has Fatherhood been treating you well?
0: It's been better than I deserve, man. It's been a blessing. Um, definitely been a way that God has been just revealing himself to me and I love it. And uh just enjoying every moment of it. Awesome. Very cool, very
1: cool. And uh I just have some typical questions I usually open up with, and I want to get those out of the way so our listeners have a little bit of understanding who you are and what you prefer. So mm-hmm. the first question is, who's your favorite old dead guy? When you pick up an old book, who do you like to
0: read? Well, I have one dead guy. Um, I would say that has probably been influential on my thoughts, who I don't read as much. I kind of read his interpreters. Um, that would be Cornelius Van Til. Um And uh, what he's contributed to theology and apologetics, probably one of my favorite um, dead guys and more recently um, deceased. Um, Going a little bit further back, of course, uh, being a Baptist, I would be exiled if I didn't mention Charles Spurgeon, (laughs) um, one of my favorite bearded gospel men. Um, Just enjoy his uh, writings, his uh, pastoral leadership and his uh, intentionality of preaching the cross of Christ. And then also I would say Martin Luther, Uh, really enjoy his writings, Um, his commentary on Galatians is something that I um, frequently return to, um, to really remind myself of justification by faith. And so uh, I I would probably say those guys right there.
1: Do you find yourself reading old dead guys a lot, or are you like the more modern guys?
0: Um, I would say it's a balance. Um, I would say uh, I definitely find it easier to read contemporary writers it's more of an exercise of, uh, me to really, uh, utilize my intelligence and utilize just me pushing through sometimes, uh, because of that time gap in style of writing. Um, but I do enjoy, uh, older writers because, uh, there's a lot of, lot there that's, uh, devotional, a lot there that is, uh, just very, uh, stimulating in terms of theological development. And so, uh, I try to balance myself out, uh, You know, uh, I think C.S. Lewis wrote about, you know, the way that we should be balancing what we're reading between old and new authors. And so that's something I try to practice.
1: Who's a modern author author you look at?
0: So uh, going back to Van Til talking about just uh, modern interpreters, uh, John Frame would definitely be one of my favorite theologians. Um, John Piper, I enjoy uh, much in uh, what he has to offer in terms of talking about the glory of God. I enjoy much uh, Tim Keller. Anything that he writes is awesome. Um, those are you know, pretty much my favorite frequent authors um, that I turn to over and over again on particular topics such as preaching or um, apologetics. I just enjoy those guys a lot.
1: Now, besides reading, I also know that you have a love for music um let's talk about that for a few minutes i know that that is gonna be a good segue into your testimony and how god used music to basically bring you to himself but what type of music do you find that uh you're if if, what's on your ipod right now
0: what is on my ipod right now uh probably church clothes three by lecrae very good very good yeah listen to a lot of that right now and uh you know uh, just enjoying his artistry, enjoying his lyrics on that. So uh, pretty diverse. I listen to worship music. I listen to rap. Uh, but right now, that's probably what you would catch me listening to.
1: How diverse are you in your music choice? Like what extreme do you go to?
0: Um, I am pretty extreme. I will listen to anything from Beethoven to Bach to all the way to B.B. King. Wow. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> classical music, blues. I, I went to a school of the arts, actually um for middle school and for high school and uh I think that was influential in developing my musical taste. Now you're a musician as well. What instruments do you play? Um I play guitar. Okay, how long have mm-hmm. you been playing guitar? I've been playing guitar since I was in 6th grade. Um so um I'm a grown man now and uh that's hard to do the math on but for a while uh for lack of a better probably at least 15 years. Um, been playing guitar. Went to school for classical guitar, uh, but primarily now um, mostly like blues um, and lead stuff.
1: Now I know from talking to you um, off the air that it was actually through music that you actually came to Christ. A little interesting tidbit to our listeners: you were actually playing in worship bands at churches, kind of as a uh, guest musician, and that was eventually how the Lord brought you to Himself. Kind of tell a little bit about that story in the background.
0: Sure, absolutely, man. I I didn't grow up in church. I was uh, what people would consider a CEO Christian, Christmas, Easter only. Um, We would make our guest appearances during, you know, um, I guess, frequent seasons or invitations, and, uh, going to the School of the Arts, though, uh, a lot of my friends were church musicians utilizing their gifts in the church. And, uh, for me, it was a great opportunity to make money, if I would be honest. Um, I was trying to get paid, and so I ended up talking with a, a security guard who was playing at a particular church, and, uh, he began to mentor me. He shared the gospel with me as I got on at that church, and then also was hearing the preacher, uh, preach the cross every sermon. And so that's how the Lord saved me. At the age of 17, I was a musician um, that was not saved. And uh, God used that in his providence to draw me out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, man, it just happened like that. Uh, You know, God took my um, uh, ability to play guitar and and drew me to himself. Cam,
1: I have to ask you, because I know this is a one of those touching points in a lot of churches. Being a believer now and actually in ministry, what is your view of using non
0: believing musicians in worship yeah I would I would I don't think I would intentionally practice that um, I think uh you know that would be a leadership role that should be reserved uh, for mature believers to minister um, I believe uh you know uh, that's a polity issue in terms of how we practice out church and I don't believe that you know church um, politics is a gospel issue but I do think that Church politics does protect the gospel, and I think that we should have people in leadership who are mature, believing Christians. And uh, I believe my testimony is um, God saved me in spite of that practice, not because of that practice. Um, So I would not utilize that as a uh, evangelistic tool in any way. I think that we should preserve that leadership Uh, for people who are mature Christians who can witness to others. uh, I do think there may be room for mentoring. Relationships in that capacity, but um, I definitely wouldn't recommend that as a, a normal practice.
1: Now, since that time, and you get converted playing in these churches, and God is using the preaching of His Word, and He's drawing you to Himself, you become a believer. How do you move from becoming a new believer into the Reformed faith?
0: Yeah, that's kind of a um, somewhat of a long story before I actually get into Reformed theology. Going to that church, it was a conservative black Baptist church. And so what I was getting was a, um, a lot of, uh, sound textual preaching. I was getting, uh, preaching about the cross, preaching about, uh, salvation through Jesus Christ. Um, and so, uh, I remember early on in my walk reading, uh, Charles Stanley or Chuck Swindoll, I never really was, um, affected by any negative theology, such as, uh, Um, prosperity, theology, or false teachers to that extent. Um, I wasn't exposed to Reformed theology until I went to the University of Central Florida. And um, we began uh, to—I was helping uh, put on Christian concerts with a particular organization, and Lecrae put on a tour called Don't Waste Your Life, and they were giving away um, books by John Piper um, by the same title. And I began to read John Piper— And uh, got exposed to his uh, big God theology and just really impacted me as a young adult in terms of what to think about, what to do with my life. And then I went to DesiringGod.org and I began to see a lot of his sermons were online and uh, saw that they were free. And I started to listen to his sermons, started to read who he was recommending And it really opened up the floodgates of Reformed theology and um, began to read R.C. Sproul and a lot of the different authors who he corresponded with. And uh, that's when I began to become Reformed in my convictions.
1: Very cool. Now, I want to just kind of explore this and flesh this out a little bit. Um, As you're coming into the Reformed faith, how foreign was the things that John Piper and these guys that are Reformed in nature are starting to teach to the things that you already believe because the argument is always that reformed theology is just biblical theology It's mm-hmm. just straight from the scriptures So you don't have to necessarily have the reform label to be holding these truths Is that something that you would say was totally new to you or was it something that you're you're vaguely familiar with or very familiar with?
0: I would say vaguely familiar with um, I think a lot of times in our Christian faith um, less explicitly challenged. Um, sometimes we can go through life and live, uh, you know, uh, with a basic understanding of the scriptures, a basic understanding of who God is, without necessarily fleshing out different nuances um, in our theological development. And so for me, I knew God saved me. I knew Jesus Christ was who he said he was. Um, but some of those categories were new for me to think about in terms of predestination, in terms of me thinking about the doctrines of grace, um, it began to develop those categories um, and a lot uh, clearer distinctions. And I began to see those distinctions um, very clearly by reading and uh, uh, getting exposed to those categories. And so I would say it's definitely biblical theology. And at the same time, I would say, since it was fairly new in my walk, That I got exposed to these doctrines, it did. um, It really did define those categories for me and open up those um, distinctions. uh, Very, very new in in my walk to really figure out, you know, um, these doctrines that necessarily I I may not come across in uh, in just a general Bible study or just a general sermon at the church I was attending.
1: How did you move from just what we'll call general Reformed faith into an appreciation towards the confessions themselves?
0: Um, you know, just uh, as I began to read, a lot of authors would uh, definitely reference uh, the confessions. Um, and uh, I ended up going to Reformed Theological Seminary as well. And uh, during my time at Reformed Theological Seminary is when I was really exposed to uh Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, took a class on it and um just to study uh, what these confessions meant and that that's when I really began to dive into you know the development of our confessions, our creeds and uh really understanding the faith once delivered all, to all the saints and uh I would say that that would probably be the the transitional point for me um was at RTS seeing the teachers um, refer to the um, confessions, utilizing them in their teaching. And I began to utilize them in my papers, utilize them in, in Bible study, in those uh, different areas um, as a great theological tool, as something even more solid, something even more substantial than just one single author. You have a theological development of these uh, great men of faith and doctrine who came together and developed a consensus that has lasted centuries um I, I just uh found that something uh so edifying, something that I could turn back to, something that I can utilize and uh really have a, a firm grasp of doctrine. So that's when I really got into the confessions and creeds and and, and those um uh utilizing them for Bible study and, and, and church history development and all those things.
1: Now I assume as a good Baptist you're holding to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. But,
0: Amen. But
1: going to uh, Reformed Theological, you're heavily indoctrinated with the Westminster Confession of Faith. We know that there's just some minor differences between the Mm -hmm. two. Um, Is there any other confessions that have been a blessing to you?
0: Uh, Yeah, I would say uh, the Westminster, you know, just not even those that are necessarily uh, more popular, but uh, that aren't necessarily utilized on. Your typical church website, right? But um, Canada's Adort, you know, has definitely been influential. Uh, we talk about the New Hampshire Baptist confession as well, kind of more of a contemporary confession um, in America. Um, those have probably been two other additional ones that I, I've utilized to be able to go back to um, and uh, formulate doctrine, really check and see uh, what these confessions say. Those would be probably the two major ones that aren't typically, you know, identified um, or utilized in a more contemporary context.
1: Do you have, and I, I got to ask this because this is just the, the 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 big deal right now, you have Ligonier's statement on Christology, mm-hmm. and we had our last guest was Mark Jones, and he's been kind of speaking out against the fact of a, a parachurch writing a confession. Do you oh. have a bias one way or another on, on uh, what you think about all that?
0: Uh, yeah, well, I guess it would be. Um, I would really have to look into that issue a little bit more, but I do believe that, you know, um I would look at a statement of faith necessarily different from a confession. um I look at something in terms of a confession to be um, defined and established by um, elders of a church who are coming across. Um, you know, whatever geographical boundaries they may have to establish a particular doctrine for either a denomination or a body of believers in general. Um, I would look at a statement of faith, uh, something that a parachurch would establish to say these are, in general, the theological parameters that we would like to operate in with people we hire, people that we become co-belligerent in in particular contexts. I think it's a helpful tool. I think it's something that they need um, established to have, uh, you know, some protection, to have some purity, and um, in, and in what they would like to see their parish church ministry establish. Uh, I hope I hope that makes sense in, in the way that I'm thinking about it.
1: No, absolutely, it does. Absolutely. How do you? Um apply the confession to your own life in the sense of, does it invade your devotional life? Does it impact the way you teach? Uh, does it offer, in a sense, guardrails to what you stay away from and what what types of churches you partner with? How, how do you how do you use the confession in your own walk?
0: Um, in my own walk, I do like to try to read through it um, frequently in ty- trying to um, make sure it is a guardrail for what i'm I've been reading to make sure that uh i uh am in alignment with a lot of the teachings found there. I do utilize the catechism um in terms of maybe uh developing a Bible study or utilizing in a study um for Sunday school or even when I'm teaching youth ministry. I may reference um some questions or some catechism. That it could be a great teaching tool, and uh I would say those are the primary means that I utilize it um I, I would like to utilize it more to be honest, I would like to try to utilize it um in a way that is really infiltrating uh all of my study and I think it would do the church well to really um rediscover the confessions afresh for us to really uphold them, and I think we do need a uh healthy um theological um, development in terms of us um, explaining why we have confessions. I know, um, you know, more in more contemporary context, we've kind of heard the no creed but the Bible um, phrases. And and in essence, we have kind of thrown the confessions to the side and kind of forgotten why we have them and uh, not understanding that uh, we are not putting them equivalent to scripture, but they are tools that we use for us to point back to scripture um, for what the body of Christ holds to. And so um, I, I would love to see that in so many different ways. I think what you're doing is important uh, for us to talk about them, for us to talk about how impactful they are. And not only that, but uh, even alluding to this question, that they're very practical in our in our use as well.
1: Hmm. Um, You're at a particular church. It's Shiloh Baptist Church. You serve under H.B. Charles, which I just would throw out. His book on preaching is absolutely a must read for preachers. Yes. Um, Here you are serving in that context. And are they confessional? And what does it look like there for you in that context if they are or aren't?
0: Yes, so um we we subscribe uh holistically to the Baptist Faith and Message, um kind of a, a broad statement of faith u- utilized by the Southern Baptist Convention. Um and then uh I would say uh for me practicing uh you know uh to the London Baptist Confession, I would say there's there's no really distinctives in terms of conflict or tension there. And uh also with Pastor Charles him being reformed in his convictions I'm sorry. Can you hear my baby crying? That, that is awesome. Don't you worry about that. My oh, okay. listeners love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then, uh, yeah, I think we are. Um, we're on one accord in, in terms of my pastor's theological vision, and, and also in terms of the church as a whole. Um, I think if you walked up and asked the typical member, they would probably know um, we're Southern Baptists and that you know we subscribe to the Baptist faith and message. Um, but probably not a lot of knowledge referencing to, um, the London Baptist Confession per se.
1: Is that something you would change if you were the head guy, or is that something you think you found a good balance where you're at with Shiloh and how, how you're going to do ministry in the future?
0: I think I found a good balance here at Shiloh. I think, uh, personally, if I had the opportunity, I might incorporate it, um, not too sure how I would. I know it definitely would be um, a reference point on our website. Definitely could be a reference point um, in how we um, assimilate new members and point them towards um, sound doctrine that we have affirmed throughout the years. I would also maybe utilize the New Hampshire as well. Tabidi Anuel Buile, at his church plan. I've seen that he's utilized the confessions in that extent, Um, I'm not sure how he does that practically, but I have seen it on his website, uh, referencing uh, uh, New Hampshire Baptist Confession and then also the London Baptist Confession. I think those would be great tools.
1: Okay. Now, I got to ask you the story. How did you end up being able to minister um, in partnership with H.B. Charles?
0: Yeah, I met Pastor Charles um, randomly at a Ligonier conference. Uh, Ligonier being the ministry put on by R.C. Sproul. We were in Orlando and... uh, was catching the shuttle and um, he was behind me and uh, I just kind of turned around and we just started talking and uh, exchange information. He told me to, uh, you know, come and talk to him whenever I came back to Jacksonville. Of course, he found out I was from Jacksonville. I was about to graduate from um, RTS and go back to Jacksonville and uh he told me to check in with him. And since then, we just kind of built a friendship and began talking. He's became a, a great mentor to me and that extent. And uh, after several months of me being there, um, I actually went away for a little while and was assisting with a church plant. And then uh, some several months after that, he uh, called me back to be the youth pastor. And so I've been serving there for uh, coming up on three years now.
1: Now, I want to I want to dive in a little bit more into Shiloh and Reformed theology, and specifically um, African Americans and Reformed theology. And when you look at that, is that is that a new front? Um, is it something that it, the the Presbyterians and the Reformed have neglected to make sure that they're bringing into the African American culture? I mean, what is, what's going on there in the sense of because it seems I'm friends with Doug Logan. I'm friends with um, uh, various African American pastors who are reformed, but yet I know that even Doug calls himself a unicorn mm-hmm. because of being a, a black Presbyterian and just help us wrap our minds around that whole issue as far as black and reformed.
0: Yeah, definitely. I would say it is a uh, definitely been somewhat of a resurgence in terms of utilizing that name in terms of utilizing those categories and also it has been somewhat of a more unique development um, when we t- are talking about um, explicitly um, African-Americans kind of being infiltrated or uh, c- considered within the broad reformed community in terms of some someone like a Doug Logan uh, within the PCA church or uh, just reformed communities. I definitely do think that we have seen enhancements in those relationships Um, Historically, it would kind of go back to our conversation. I think uh, you would see um, that there have been African-Americans, predominant uh, African-Americans who have been reformed in their faith, who have had those um, reformed convictions, but not necessarily those uh, uh, reformed categories, if I could say it. Um, So uh, God's sovereignty. Um, You go back to the slave narratives. You go back to um, a lot of the early sermons within the African-American church. God's sovereignty is there because God's sovereignty is one of the things they really had to trust in in terms of them seeing their suffering as redemptive. Right. So um, there's reform categories there, um, but not necessarily the same terminology um, that we would actually um, baptize it in. Um, I think uh, a lot of things have contributed to um, really seeing reform theology take off in this um, type of theological context. Um, you have the radio ministries of R.C. Sproul, the radio ministries of uh, John MacArthur, or John Piper, that are really infiltrating a lot of homes and affecting a lot of communities. You have uh, not only that, uh, uh, a majority of Christian hip-hop, which is— uh, reaching a lot of minorities is reformed in nature. A lot of those guys are reformed in their convictions. Um, and so, man, it's, just, it's just so many things that contribute to this this new resurgence of, of brothers actually not just having those uh, convictions and uh, having those biblical categories, but using the same terminology, I would say it's beginning to develop. Um, I would say the tension there is definitely um, for African Americans, the tension that exists is the the dirty racial history that we have here in America. And um, we really cannot uh, say as Christians that we were completely not involved in those uh, conversations. Uh, for a lot of African Americans, for them to, uh, to look at the history of the Southern Baptist Convention or to look at the history of the PCA, there are a lot of um, racist connotations or white privilege connotations that have really pushed them away. And so when you begin to present these particular doctrines or even particular authors, um, it could be difficult. Um, it could be difficult for them to want to assimilate into that process, um, knowing the history. Um, you can imagine, you know, if I gave a, a brother uh, a series of George Whitfield sermons and he's reading those George Whitfield sermons and he really gets into George Whitfield. And then he begins the research, um, man, that he was an advocate for slavery for whatever reasons. Right, um, right. That would be something hard for him to swallow, something hard for him to develop. And so I think the next step for us in talking about um, African-Americans within reformed theology is making sure we're stressing our conversations about racial reconciliation itself um, and for us to be able to have those conversations honestly. And understanding that it's only the gospel who can let let us have those conversations, um, letting go of our pride and letting go of our guilt, um, because all we stand in need of is given to us in Christ Jesus.
1: And that's a great point that you're bringing up about the fact that the gospel is what really can unify us. And uh, I know that as the evangelical church has spread, and good gospel doctrine has spread, whether it's uh, black or white or yellow, it doesn't matter. As the gospel goes forward and communities are changed, there is now this resurgence of of being multi-ethnic, this idea of being one and, and, and seeing what Revelation depicts as every nation, every creed, every language at the throne of Christ and celebrating him. And there's a new resurgence to all that. But in the midst of all this dialogue, you also have what's on the TV about the race relations. You have what's mm-hmm. going on in, uh, in churches where uh, you still have a very segregated type of worship in uh, a lot of uh, neighborhoods. And uh, recently, uh, Charlie Dates... Wrote this article not to don't give up on the black church. Mm-hmm. I had the privilege of hearing Charlie Date speak in Philadelphia at the Thriving Conference, and when I was there, I was just in awe of first of all his ability behind the pulpit, but mm-hmm. the uh, the truthfulness in which he speaks on these particular issues that we're talking about. I want you to kind of speak a little bit to it and as best, as best you can.
0: I think what uh, Charlie specifically is speaking to in the article that he wrote is um, African-American brothers having a disdain uh, from where they came from. And a lot of times using their theological convictions, uh, specifically um, perform developments that may push them away from the African-American church and then, uh, you know, really kind of turning up their nose to those pastors who disciple them. Um, those pastors who preached sound doctrine, those pastors who lived lifestyles that were worthy of imitation, and then going to other um, white evangelical churches that are using um, terminology that they love to hear, um, but not, also not understanding that th- that church, that context, is going to have similar issues as well, um, because there is no such thing as a perfect church. Um, and so, what we, you know, sometimes we witness within the African American community. Uh, is that our, our younger leaders um, turn away from that context to get the theology that they are learning in seminary um, instead of taking that theology back to the church in, in, in essence. Mm. Uh, and so it's also, to me, it's kind of a, a systemic issue as well um, in terms of me talking about, you know, a typical white evangelical seminary um, and you get black or African-American Students, Um, it's an issue that we need to have about placement. It's an issue that we need to have about um, where are these brothers going to serve? Um, Do they have the option and does the seminary have the tools and relationships to take this brother, develop this brother and say, now we don't want you to look back, uh, look down on the context that you came from. Um, We're going to send you back into that context instead of trying to get you to do our residencies Mm -hmm. or our quote unquote urban programs or to be our quote unquote urban guy that we platform. And so I think uh, Charlie, you know, really struck a nerve. He really um, talked about a lot of the idols that we hold to um, in that sense. And in terms of diversity, you know, I think uh, God has called us to reach the communities that we're in. Um, God has called us to, um, also be move out of our comfort zones. And, uh, so I, I think it, it, I don't want somebody to, you know, read Charlie's article and think, oh yeah, they just stay in their black church and we're just going to keep our white church. Right. Right. Um, no, God has called us to, uh, you know, relinquish our authority in terms for us to serve our neighbor. Hmm. Um, and so I think of if a church is finding themselves predominantly white and you're in the African-American community, if you're uh, in the urban core, if you're downtown um, and there's nobody who you are reaching that is um, minority, then I think a pastor should consider that he needs he needs to consider that not just at a pragmatic level, but also at a heart level. Um, what are we doing um, that is necessarily maybe alienating um, those in our community? that we need to reach with the gospel.
1: Doug Logan talks about not bussing people in from one uh, one neighborhood to the next, but making uh-huh. sure that your church reflects the culture of the neighborhood it's in. And if right. that's multi-ethnic, your church needs to be all multi-ethnic. If it's predominantly a black neighborhood, it makes sense that it's predominantly going to be a black church and the same thing in the white but he says ultimately the goal should be that we love one another and that we're serving one another and i heard you use all those same terms Mm -hmm. what do you think about all this multi-ethnic push that's happening and is it real or are there glass ceilings that you're seeing for a lot of the uh a lot of the african americans that are going through the schools and adopting and doing ministry in these white evangelical churches
0: Yeah, I do think we're on the frontier. And so I think we're learning in a lot of ways. Um, We're learning what works. We're learning what doesn't work. Um, I think uh, right now you have people who take it as novel. And so um, you have those who are jumping on board for the sake of popularity or because they heard it at a conference and they may have felt um, emotionally moved, but have not really put that... um, those emotions or those heart stirrings really um, to the ground and really made it concrete. Um, And so it it really takes a lot of intentionality to do this multi-ethnic work that we're talking about. And um, there's just all kinds of ways that a person could go about it wrong. Um, I would just say as intangible lessons, we just need to listen more. Uh, We need to listen to one another more. We need to talk more. We need to reach across the table and be able to understand the barriers that really exist between us. Um, the truth is, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression that have put us where we are. Mm. And that's not going to just be erased by putting by hiring somebody in a particular position. Right. Um, there are some tough conversations that we need to have. There are some um, ways that we need to repent. And so I think we just need to listen more. We need to pray more. And um, we have a long way to go, if I could put it any other way. But I, I do think we're going in the right direction. But I do think because so much talk is happening about multi-ethnic ministry, people are trying to almost make it a philosophy program um, instead of a commitment to a lifestyle within a church.
1: Right. And that's my biggest fear, as I see, as you see what we'll call a lot of token hires. Yes. And there is not there is a glass ceiling, and it's not mm-hmm. really to empower and enable uh, ministry, but to basically look like we are doing, you know, the right kind of philosophy of ministry. So I appreciate so much of what you're saying. It strikes uh, so deeply in something that's a very personal issue for me in um, what we're trying to be about here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to hit another issue with you on this that you kind of mentioned, but we didn't get to kind of uh, fully work out is... Uh, African Americans in reformed seminaries. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to RTS as well, and um, there weren't a lot of African Americans in our in our in our classes. There <laughs> there, wa- there wasn't a lot of even referencing the books or right. the writings of mm-hmm. of African American uh, theologians. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the questions Doug Logan asked me personally a number of years ago was, "How many African American theologians do you have in your bookshelf?" Mm. And I had to repent and say I had none right um and I didn't even know where to begin in that journey and of course, Doug helped me out greatly, but I think there is a disservice that's going on on multiple for multiple reasons mm-hmm. but i but could you address some of that of what you see as a black man walking into a predominantly white reformed seminary
0: yes uh sure um you know there are number one. If we have to understand the cultural capital that somebody is spending to go to a white evangelical seminary. Um, And so we really have to take to heart that brothers who are willing to do this, brothers who are going to go to that um, seminary um, that is often without their cultural comfort zones, um, oftentimes uh, outside their denominational comfort zones, they are spending a, a lot of cultural capital in a couple of a couple of ways. Number one, um, they're being separated more than likely from their local church that they're serving, um, being separated from the pastor that they were serving or the context that they were serving. Um, they are being into a new context uh, with uh, people who may or may not know how to interact with him appropriately, I guess is that the political way to say it. Um, And so, you know, for me, I was going to a white evangelical seminary and there was three African-Americans out of a student body of 300. Um, And for a lot of people, um, you can only imagine what it what does it what does it feel like to be a minority in that proportion. Right. Um, So we become the voice um, to a lot of people for the whole African-American community. In actuality, we're just a segment. Uh, We are not exhaustive of what that culture is. Um, And so those are barriers in itself. Those are barriers to make lasting relationships, to have hard conversations with people who it may be their first close exposure with the African American. Um, And not to say that that was everybody's story, but in some cases it is. Um, And then also just to what does it say about my intellect when everybody I read is not my color? Mm. Um, What does that say about the tradition that I have come from? What does that say about the tradition um, that I believe has nourished me in my faith? Um, those are things that you have to take back um, and really understand, um, you know, what what this person may be going through. What does it mean for me to not read anybody of my same color, but also read people who may have affirm slavery at the same time and what would be my struggles with those
1: and what does it Uh, say what does it say to the to the white kid like myself who grew up in the suburbs in the white church when i guess i grew up in a society where i believe the great theologians were all white right and it's a wrong teaching because we're ignoring that god has you know used color he's used culture he's used race as means of preaching the gospel our own Lord and Savior was Jewish, not Caucasian. Right. Um, and as you begin to move through that, you look at like uh, St. Augustine of, of Hippo. Uh, mm-hmm. he, here's a, a man of color, which right. when you begin to think through that, it, it oh, yeah, the coin drops. But for a white guy like me, I'm always reading and just seeing them all as white. Right. And uh, I can imagine the the – the, the burden that puts on and, and the obstacles that creates when a person of color walks into a white reformed evangelical seminary.
0: Right. Yeah. So you have those issues. Um, you have issues of placement as well um, to think about um, where will I serve? Where in ministry will I, uh, will I serve? Um, there's a lot of barriers that exist there for placement. Um, if you don't know anybody within my context or my denomination, um, one example is for me, um, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm not a Presbyterian, right? I'm not a part of a Presbyterian Church in America. And so it's on that seminary in terms of stewarding their students very well. It's trying to uh, establish interdenominational uh, relationships, but not only that, cross cultural relationships. Um, seminaries in that context um, have to establish relationships with pastors. Um, of different colors, different cultural barriers um, that can uh, be a, a lifeline for a student who is coming in as a minority. Um, so for me, you know, I just would have felt stewarded it well to know that at least I had one option of somebody within my context, such as an HB. Charles Jr. who was affiliated with my seminary. Not to say that I would automatically go back to that context, but just to have somebody within that context I can have these discussions with. Um, and in terms of placement, you know, um, church planting, I know a lot of guys may not necessarily be, um, uh, drawn to church planting because we're talking about another system. I think that is in place that actually detours brothers from getting involved is fundraising. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my relationship and the net worth of all my relationships are not conducive for me to fundraise. Um, And so that's a barrier for me. And so you're asking me to do something, um, but not understanding that my cultural context may not lend itself well to that as a ministry option. And then uh, how are you going to help that person overcome it? And so there's just all kinds of different ways um, that somebody can easily feel alienated if you're not willing to have, you know, those uncomfortable conversations and realize, man, this is a system that's been set up to benefit the majority. And actually, in some ways, alienate the minorities that we have come to our our institution.
1: How do we how do we fix this and and, and give me some practical things? I know I got to believe you and some of your friends and and white, black doesn't matter, have sat down and talked about these things. What Mm -hmm. are some things that you think can be small steps in the right direction?
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I think, you know, it starts with conversations like this starts with honest conversations. Um, it starts with us um, having that gospel-centered identity where uh, we can take criticism and not have our identity be attacked. Uh, we can do as Tim Keller said, right? We could say, I'm more sinful than I like to imagine. So what you are about to say, even though it attacks um, privilege on my part, it possibly can be true because all have fallen short of the glory of God. And I can move forward, though, because I know I'm loved by God. Um, And my identity is what Jesus Christ has done for me. And I will say a lot of times, to be honest, um, we don't get that far. Uh, And a lot of the conversations are um, very much um, taken in a way where criticism is looking at uh, a person's identity being attacked, that evangelical institution's identity being attacked, uh, where we may look at, you know, the minority being mad at the institution or, also, that brother could be prideful um, and hold a, a lot of pride and resentment against that institution that he's gone through. And so I think we have to have gospel centered attitudes for us to move forward in these discussions. Um, another one, I would say not to have token hires, but to have influential hires, to have somebody who is going to be hired, not just to be the urban person. Right. Not just to be the person to recruit urban people or African-American people, but to hire somebody of a a minority context who is the person of power, who is a decision maker, who understands the way that the system may alienate people from that context. And I would say to have that person lead um, in an unadulterated way, uh, to have them lead in a way that isn't colonized, I would say. A lot of times we take people from a minority context and then we want to colonize them and have them lead the way we would lead because Mm -hmm. we feel uncomfortable about, you know, um, what decisions they may make. But within a evangelical circle, I think that we have to hire those leaders and we have to let them challenge our blind spots. We have to let them show us where we are actually um, theologizing a cultural value uh, and uh, trying to use our theology to place that over somebody else.
1: This has been a great, great conversation, and I appreciate your honesty through it. It's one we're working hard at our end um, in in a white suburb uh, of Trenton, Michigan, and realizing God has placed us here. But our neighbor is Detroit. And how can we help so that indigenous men are being raised up to plant and to Uh, a minister there in the city that's desperately needs the gospel just like it in Trenton desperately needs the gospel and how can we partner together i think those partnerships and the things you've talked about are are a lot of help in the right direction so thank you for your honesty
0: oh yeah absolutely
1: i want to turn the page to the uh, topic that you're very passionate about which is apologetics Mm -hmm. yeah um And I guess the first question I have for you, obviously you've already mentioned that Van Till is somebody that you uh, greatly admire. You enjoy his reading uh, reading his writings. Um, You also mentioned John Frame, who is a disciple of Van Till and Mm -hmm. the impact he has had on you. So I'm already kind of summarizing you up as a presuppositionalist. And for our listener, would you describe what a presuppositional apologist believes and holds to?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I would say it is a uh, a commitment, a commitment to the Bible being our sole authority, um, a commitment to the Bible or divine revelation. God revealed as the absolute personality, um, being the consensus and also being the avenue of which we discover truth. And so a presuppositionalist is not going to come into any apologetic arguments or any theological development without referring to the Bible Because we believe that without God's revelation of himself as an absolute personality, you cannot have a consistent worldview. Um, And so uh, I believe what John Frame says that uh, presuppositional apologetics is not as much um, a methodology as it is a uh, commitment uh, in how we do the task of apologetics, if that makes sense.
1: No, absolutely. Would you recommend a couple of uh, books or things that people who are new to apologetics can maybe wrap their uh, their hands on and, 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 mm-hmm. and begin to understand the deeper side of apologetics?
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I, would, I would recommend, this is a book that I kind of refer to um, often, it's called Five Views on Apologetics, um, and within that you will get a presuppositional argument, but you will get that presuppositional apologetics um, their chapter is written by John Frame, but he interacts with William Lane Craig. He interacts with Gary Habermas. He interacts with Kelly James Clark and Paul Feinberg, who all come from different apologetic schools. And I think it's the greatest dialogue in print that you can get. And then for a practical presentation of presuppositionalism, um, I would recommend Apologetics to the Glory of God, recently re-released just Apologetics um, by John Frame. It's a great book. Um, I love it. And uh, if a person just wanted to go deeper into presuppositionalism in terms of its epistemology, its theory of knowledge, I would recommend um, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God by John Frame as well.
1: Now, how did apologetics come to be something that you're so passionate about?
0: Man, I went to UCF and I began to get my head whipped in uh, (laughs) by a lot of professors who— Did not believe what I believed. And these guys, uh, University of Central Florida, I did a religious studies program, and a lot of my professors were actually ex-pastors. Some of them had kind of just uh, quit the ministry. Some of them were kicked out of denominations because of particular lifestyle choices. Um, I had atheist professors. Um, It was interdisciplinary in its study. And so I had Hindu professors, I had philosophers, and I would say out of all the religions that we were studying, Christianity seemed, uh, and I would say evangelical Christianity in particular, definitely seemed to be a point of tension. And so as I was being challenged in lectures, I began to get a lot of um, books on apologetics. And uh, it was actually my exposure to John Frank through the Apologetic Study Bible, where I learned about RTS and learned about him. But uh, that's where I really began to dive into defending the faith and then also just trying to I was doing a uh, witnessing downtown I was just sharing the gospel downtown Orlando and uh came up with a lot of apologetic arguments there and so I was uh learning it in the classroom and learning it on the streets at the same time
1: I guess I uh, you know you're a, you're a youth youth guy and in that your ministry is 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 predominantly those who are either going into college or are currently in college and in in that you know there's a lot of books written on staying christian in college and things like mm-hmm. that what are some of the biggest hurdles for guys who are entering college that are going to should be ready to experience from the professors in a very antagonistic kind of way what are some of the key topics that you saw um kind of uh attacked on what fronts yeah
0: i would say for me noticing um uh, what is taught in those classrooms and then also just knowing um, just that most college students are going to be new believers. I will say the biggest thing is just having a solid theological foundation, a solid theological foundation of knowing what the Bible is and knowing what the Bible teaches. And I don't, I don't say that in the sense of that the Bible is just basic instruction before leaving earth interpretation. I'm talking about knowing the redemptive story of Jesus Christ as the point of the text. I'm not talking about looking at the Bible as just a moral life handbook, but looking at Jesus Christ being the point of redemptive history and then also understanding the Bible and its genres, just having a good, robust theological understanding of what the Bible is. I think that's just so important because a lot of times um, we if we do not disciple them properly in the church uh, with this view of redemptive history, with this view of what the work of Jesus Christ was and actually healing them of their um, you know, uh, therapeutic deism, right? Uh, and they get in and they think that they're saved by their good works and that the Bible is just a collection of a, a bunch of stories to be good and to be better. And they walk into that world religion class, they're going to get rocked. They're going to get rocked because they have actually, um, we built legalists. We don't, we haven't built people who have a true trust and reliance on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and nor did they ha- know how to interpret the scriptures Um, with Jesus Christ being the center of it all. And so I think we have to go back to that. I think we have to go back to the gospel. We have to go back to Jesus Christ being the point of the Bible. And then from there, begin to develop a theology that is coherent with the redemptive history and the way that the Bible was written. I think that's key. And I think that's number one.
1: Now, one of my professors in apologetics was Ron Nash, who's now Mm. since deceased. But Ron Nash used to say, don't let them put the burden of proof on you. Yeah. And that seems to be almost what is expected when you walk in the classroom at a secular university. The yes. burden of proof is on you to prove that 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 God exists, that Christianity is true, that the Bible is true. How do you help someone to work through those specifics mm. in, in a in a very antagonistic, you know, uh, situation?
0: Right. I think that is where I and en- I really enjoy presuppositional apologetics because it is a truly offensive apologetic it doesn't just put you on the defense in terms of you proposing arguments a presuppositional apologetic says i believe that we can only have a coherent worldview if it is a christian worldview and here's why now you tell me how your worldview can be consistent absent of the christian guy and boom it's you know number one uh when I began to work with students and talk to them about how we actually need revelation and we cannot come to any conclusion with more with autonomous reason and show them that, you know, they're really pulling the rug from under their opponents to demonstrate that reason itself, empiricism itself. And none of these things can actually give us the standard of truth. We need to come at any moral conclusions. We need revelation. We need an absolute personality of the Bible. Um, it gives them a, that afo- offensive po- apologetic that allows them to ask questions on how somebody actually qualifies their worldview, but not only just qualifies their worldview, qualifies it consistently. Um, and so I, that's why I, I enjoy that type of apologetic. And I think it's, it is a good uh, way for them to be offensive, to ask hard questions and uh, for them to be able to utilize the Bible in their arguments as well, not, not abandoning the main tool we have in our defense of the faith.
1: Mm. What are some of the other big issues that you think face Christians in today's climate?
0: Mm. That's good. If you would allow me, I'd like to speak uh, just kind of contextual to the African-American context. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is why uh, the other side of me being interested in apologetics, um, there are are not a lot of apologists um, writing for the African-American context. Um, You could probably count them on one hand. And that's if you've really done your research to see um, in terms of somebody who is not just a pastor, and apologist, but somebody who is specifically dedicated to the discipline. Um, So we need more apologists within that context who are dealing with African-American religious cults. Um, If you survey your typical literature on apologetics, you will be hard pressed to find anything on the Moors. You'll be hard pressed to find anything on the Nation of Islam or Black Hebrew Israelites And those are black religious cults that are uprising, who a lot of our members are engaging and don't have a defense against. Um, I think we have to be able to contact uh, something that is becoming more popular nowadays is called uh, black humanism, which is really new atheism for African-Americans. We see that uh, popularized by a lot of leaders of the Black Lives Movement who are um, they're not necessarily the new civil rights that we are seeing is not necessarily religious. Um, some of it is atheistic, some of it is uh, primarily black humanist, and we need um, conservative evangelical brothers who are engaging those conversations who are writing for those conversations um, and so that's why uh, I'm really adamant about apologetics within the african American context as well.
1: cam, you got me excited i'm I'm looking for your book, buddy. <laughs>
0: hey pray for me man I, I'm a slow writer
1: <laughs> <laughs> no i uh, I really appreciate what you're bringing here to the table um apologetics is something philosophy apologetics all of that has been something that's captured me and one of the mm-hmm. things I could tell early in our conversations has been you have a real love for God's word and making sure that we are we are we're not we're not apologizing for it <laughs> but right that right. We're, we're defending it properly and mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, as you said, even to the black community. And so I just praise God for you. I praise what he's doing there at Shiloh Baptist Church and your ministry with the youth. And brother, I thank you for the time you have committed to us today. Um, It has been wonderful just hearing your thoughts and what God's uh, doing in your life. I got to ask you this question, because when I was at Thriving and Charlie Dates was standing behind the pulpit and preaching, he was hooping, I got to uh-huh. ask you, I didn't even know what hooping was. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> probably, most of my, probably most of my listeners don't either. And, uh, and literally, uh, the, 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 the passion that came out of, of Charlie, is, is that something that you yourself uh, engage in? And, and, and can you maybe describe it to my listeners? Because they mm-hmm. have no idea of what we're talking about, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, so uh, hooping would be a, a uh, celebration within the structure of the sermon. Um, And it also happens to have a uh, musical effect where the pastor is somewhat singing his sermon and preaching it at the same time. It's kind of how I would describe hooping. It it is the gravy. It is the sauce on the meat. um, A lot of people uh, would describe it as. And uh, for me, I don't necessarily do that. And I will tell you why. Um, I don't have the uh, vocal talent. (laughs) Uh, If I had the vocal talent, I'm sure I would do it. But some old preachers um, uh, say this, I I don't have a hoop, but I have a holler. And uh, (laughs) so I can't hoop it, but I'll I'll definitely shout it. Um, And so it's a great way to actually. uh, And I think that that's unique to the African-American tradition, too, as well. um, The development of preaching, but uh, to see preaching not just something as a theological discourse, but to see it as worship um, and celebration and worship that we're proclaiming and celebrating the word of God as well.
1: Well, when we were talking about apologetics, you were getting pretty close to hooping.
0: So, (laughs) so I
1: got to tell you, there's, there's some real passion there. And I just, again, I just want to thank you for your time and, uh, uh, just thank your wife and your child. I, I pray God's blessing on your family, your ministry. And, uh, thanks again, just for everything you're doing for the kingdom, brother.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you for having me, man. And I look forward to staying in contact.
1: Yeah. And if if we have uh, if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you with some questions about any of the topics we talked about, what's the best way to get a
0: hold of you? Um, I would say just uh, simply uh, email me. It's uh, Cameron M.L. Triggs at gmail.com. dot uh, com. Triggs at gmail.com. If they're specifically interested in apologetics, they can check out a, a ministry I'm a part of with the founder, Lisa Fields. It's called Jude three project.com. Thank you so much,
1: brother. And you have a great week. Thank you, man. You too. All right. Thanks for listening to the confessional collective podcast. For
0: more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.